Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. If you are new, welcome. If not, welcome back. Uh, we're continuing our series in Revelation today, specifically through uh, the seven letters from Jesus himself to seven churches in Asia Minor, which are found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which means we're reading through this ancient mail that Jesus sent through the Apostle John to the leaders of these churches. And what we see is Jesus encourages them and he corrects them. So let's jump in. In the last few weeks, we've covered uh, the first two letters from Jesus to the church at Ephesus and the church at Smyrna. And we know that these churches were under very real persecution and hardship. And today, we're going to take kind of an extended trip to the city of Pergamum. And the big thing going on here is that they are kind of being just crushed and squeezed from all sides, kind of pressured to acquiesce and give in to the social and cultural practices around them, some of these practices were really bad and ugly. So a few weeks ago, we said the point of these encouraging letters from Jesus is he wants his church to have hope and to live with holiness in the midst of these pressures all around them. And even though this letter wasn't written to us, uh, because it's really old and it was written specifically for the community it was intended for, um, it was, however, definitely written for us to be passed on to other churches like ours, even down through the centuries, so that we can receive the same encouragement. This letter is for anyone who is living the way of Jesus and is trying to stay focused on him when you're in an environment that is constantly kind of vying to pull your focus to other things. It's for anyone who wants to live a holy life in a world that consistently advertises and popularizes and stimulates and advocates for and pushes us to give in to unholiness. The message here is also for anyone who is kind of who's kind of hunted and raced after the gratifications of this world and come up unfulfilled and hollow and devoid of meaning and true satisfaction in your life. It's for those who have done all that and realized that that way doesn't lead to real fulfillment and contentment. It actually just leads to regret and heartbreak. So let's read this letter from Jesus to the church at Pergamum and see what it has to say to us today, starting in Revelation 2, uh, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak how to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, that is a lot to take in, and it's full of meaning. There's a lot of images here. So let's get our bearings by taking a look at the map we looked at last time. You can see Ephesus and Smyrna that we've already talked about. Pergamum is also a coastal city, even though it's inland a bit. And again, just like the other two, this is a pretty big city and it's fairly influential. 
It'd be like Ephesus was San Francisco today and Smyrna is Portland and now Pergamon would be Seattle. So Ephesus is a huge business center uh, and it influenced the culture heavily. So where Smyrna last time was super affluent, had a lot of wealth, here we're talking about Pergamum, and it is a massive political power. It had a lot of idol worship going on, and interestingly enough, it was also known for its hospital. And we'll get to that in a minute. So in Revelation 1, verses 9 through 16, which we covered a few weeks ago, John, who's the author of Revelation, he has this vision uh, of Jesus. And there's a ton of symbols and metaphors and imagery going on in this section. It's when we talked about all the lampstands, the stars, the bronze feet, the sword coming out of Jesus's mouth. And we learned that the lampstands represent these churches in Asia Minor. And the stars are referred to as the angels of the seven churches. And what John means by these angels, what he means is the leaders of these seven churches. And before we get to what Jesus says to the church at Pergamum and dive into that, let's talk about the city itself. The first thing you need to know uh, about this area, about Rome, the Roman Empire, is that there were territorial provinces within the Roman Empire, kind of like Washington State, um, you know, is a state within the country of the United States, and, and Olympia is the capital of Washington State, then Pergamum would be the capital city of the province of Asia Minor within the Roman Empire. So we've talked about this before, actually a few years ago, but Rome gave Pergamum this special status known as Potestigladi, Gladi, which means the power of the double-edged sword. And that was their status as a city, which meant uh, the city leaders, if they made a decision, it was as if that decision had come from Caesar himself. So it was kind of a special kind of authority to make decisions with the power of Caesar, and it was called the power of the double-edged sword, Potestigladi. Gladi. Pergamum, also had a ton, of, a ton of temples, like 17 different temples to different Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. And a lot of them were up on a hillside that overlooked the city uh, and far off to the ocean. So here's what it would feel like uh, to move around in this city. At the top of the hill, there was this temple to Caesar Augustus. Some people would actually worship the Caesars as if they were gods. We talked about that before. And uh, that temple, in that temple, there was an altar. And in uh, the temple, the altar was shaped like a throne. And this was actually very typical of altars because it was a symbol that the God was dwelling there. It was like they were right there on the throne, that they were living in the temple and that they're still in charge. There was also a temple to Athena in Pergamum, and it opened up into this amphitheater, which was one of the largest theaters in the world at that time. And then there's also the temple of Zeus, which, which had an altar which was also shaped like a throne, but it was humongous. It was 40 feet tall, it was overlaid with gold, and it was so shiny that it was visible to ships that were miles out to sea. And actually, you can go visit this altar at the Pergamum Museum in, Ber in Berlin, Germany. It was taken apart and then reconstructed in Germany in 1930. So what I want you to do is pretend to put yourself back there in Pergamum as a follower of Jesus in that time, as a Christian living in the shadow of these massive temples. Can you imagine it? 17 temples, 17 different gods throughout the city, and you're trying to stay focused on the one true God, but everybody else has centered their life and, and their core concentration on the worship of idols. And then there's another temple dimension. It's the Greek to the Greek god Dionysus. It, was, it wasn't very big compared to some of the others, but it was super important because every year they had this festival centered around this Greek god Dionysus. 
who is the God of wine and pleasure. We talked about this God way back in our series in the Gospel of John a few years back um, when we talked about the great I am statements of Jesus. Um, this is like, this festival is like Burning Man meets Woodstock combined with Mardi Gras, and it's all taking place in Vegas. <laughs> and during the festival, there was this altar that was entirely covered with raw meat. And uh, we showed this in that John series. There was this road up to the top of the hill that was dotted with storefronts and restaurants where you could get wine. And so people would come to this festival and they spent all their time eating this meat sacrificed to idols and drinking wine. It was basically just free. And it, at the same time, there's all these dances and parties and orgies taking place. And in fact, it was the belief in the city at this time that a woman wasn't fit to marry until she had lost her virginity at the festival of Dionysus. So you can imagine what it was like to live as a Christian at this time, kind of stuck in this fishbowl environment of unholiness. And if you didn't participate in any of this, then you stuck out like a sore thumb. Would it be difficult to stay holy and hopeful in an environment like this? Probably. Well, the last well-known thing about Pergamum was the giant hospital was there. Probably a lot of people went there after this festival of Dionysus. I don't know. Probably not. Just kidding. But it was like an ancient version of some of our best hospitals today. The Greek god of healing was Asclepius. So the hospital was called the Asclepion. And he had this staff or rod called the rod of Asclepius. And we still use this symbol from this rod today. It's on the flag of the World Health Organization. It's put on ambulances quite often, uh, even today. So people would come to the Asclepius, which was kind of a hospital temple combo. What I mean by that is that in order to see the doctor, in order to see the physician, you were required to give an offering of incense to the gods. But what do you do if you're a Christian and you need medical help? Do you, do you go give this offering to these gods? So, and then there was this white stone in the courtyard of the hospital. And if you were healed at the hospital, you would write your name, kind of give a testimony, a short story of how you were healed on that white stone. So, now that we have all this bird's eye view of Pergamum and its culture kind of stuck in our back pocket, let's talk about some of these deeper symbols and themes from the letter we just read. First, we have that double-edged sword. We learned that in the Roman Empire, the double-edged sword is all about authority. But in this letter, John writes the words of Jesus, and Jesus is the one who has authority. He has the sword. So to a Christian living in Pergamum, it, you're like, okay, but it probably doesn't look that way to you. The view you're getting from the curb is like, does Jesus really have the sword? But Jesus is actually the one who has the authority, is what he's saying. And this is what the book of Revelation does. It's why the book is so important. It reveals the way things actually are. In the spiritual world, which is just as real as what you can see and touch, Jesus is the one with authority. It's very much in line with what we read in Hebrews 4, uh, verses 12 through 13, where it says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But what's interesting here is that the sword is not in Jesus' hand. It's coming out of his mouth. And this symbolizes that Jesus' Jesus's authority comes from his word. He speaks with authority. So then the question is this. Are you listening? Are we listening? Well, then Jesus says, 
that Satan has his throne in Pergamum, which is probably a reference to all these temples with all these altars that are shaped like thrones, especially the massive open-air altar to Zeus on the top of the hill. Jesus says in Pergamum, it looks and feels like the devil is the boss of this city. But Jesus says, I see you being true to my name. And we can look around our city and our culture and feel like Satan is kind of the mayor or the CEO. But there is a deeper, more true reality where Jesus is in charge. And this is why in Revelation 1 that we read a few weeks ago, verses 4 and 5, we see Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come. And everyone is before his throne. And it goes on to say that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So there is a throne in heaven. And the one true God is still sitting on it. And if you need to be reminded of this reality, maybe some homework for you would be to read Revelation 4. Skip ahead a little bit. And it will remind you that God is on his throne and there is worship going on every single moment. What this means is that in the midst of the culture we live in, we are not fighting a losing battle as Christians. The one true king is already on his throne and the battle has already been won. And they needed to hear this. They need this encouraging reminder because it's way too easy to be discouraged. We see that Antipas, who was part of this church, has been killed for his faith. That's got to be very discouraging. And what Jesus is saying through John to this church at Pergamum and to the church today is that God is still working even when it looks like he's not. He's still on the throne. This letter to Pergamum is all about remaining faithful and true to Jesus. It's about being steadfast, being steadfast and faithful to Jesus, being true to him. And that's a result of remembering who is really in charge. So Jesus encourages them, but he also corrects them about staying true. Um, some of the people in this church are following the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, who we've already talked about a few weeks ago. These Nicolaitans believed you could have a right heart and stay true to God, but live however you want. They would say, you can live however you want to, meaning your actions could contradict what you say you believed, and they were okay with that. And Jesus says, uh -uh, you need to repent because your ways are not okay. And he reminds them that he has a sword in verses 15 and 16. He basically says, right actions show a right heart. But the story of Balaam and Balak is in the, in the, is in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Balaam is a prophet who commits treason against Israel by telling their enemy, King Balak, how to defeat the Israelites. Well, what's the method for victory? Well, Balak doesn't attack with force. Instead, he sends his women from his nation to seduce the men of Israel. So Jesus uses this Old Testament story to say, I am the ultimate authority on what is right and wrong. Just a side note here in Revelation, there's a lot of Old Testament references. So what we see is this. In these letters in particular, there are references to images and stories from the Old Testament that are kind of intertwined and mixed in with images from the surrounding culture of the day. And it's really fascinating and sophisticated, actually. Because it's image layered on top of image layered on top of image intertwining the ancient and the, and the modern. And the reason for this is that Jesus knows these images from the Old Testament are just saturated with meaning and they're really powerful. And the other reason he uses this style of layering images and symbols is to show that none of this is new. It's not new to God. It's not new to humanity. There's nothing new under the sun. God has seen this type of thing many times over, and he is not the least bit surprised by it. And that's the message for us as well. It may seem like everything is getting worse and worse and worse, and the reality is that we have been up to this stuff many times over. We have continually found ways to hurt each other and ourselves. 
But Jesus calls us to remember that the way to stay true to him is to remember that he is in charge. Finally, Jesus ends this letter to Pergamum with some promises. Verse 17 shows us two promises for those who persevere. And here they are. God will give some of the hidden manna, and God will give a white stone to that person who perseveres. Again, this is the intertwining of images from the Old Testament, the ancient, and the current culture of that time, which we'll call modern. The manna was the bread that God gave to his people when they were wandering in the wilderness you know, centuries ago with Moses. Every day God gave them their daily bread, bread from heaven, and this bread, it just lasted for one day. So they had to learn to trust God. You only get what you get for that day. And then Jesus came later on and he compared himself to the manna from heaven. In John 6, 35, he said, I am the bread of life. God provided Jesus to meet our greatest need. And our greatest need is not physical, it's spiritual. We need a savior to save us from our sin. And that's what God provided for us in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to take away the guilt of our sins. And he took our shame on himself and he took it to the grave with him and he left it there. And then he rose from the dead to show that sin and death will not have the last word. So by mentioning the manna in this letter, Jesus is saying, I am still with you. You can still trust in me. So the manna represents the presence of Jesus. And we have this white stone image as well. We know the background, that it's a symbol of healing. It's really a testimony or story of healing in that culture. So Jesus is reminding them, and he's reminding us that we can be healed. It's a personal testament of what Jesus has done in our lives. So really, this white stone represents our identity in Jesus, how he's shaped and formed us and given us our calling and our identity. So now we know all this stuff about this letter. Jesus writes to them and he writes it for us. We know what Jesus is saying to us, but what are we going to do about it? What are the takeaways? What are the actions we can take? So last time we said the reason we're going through these letters in the first place and unpacking them is that we want to become more and more of the church Jesus wants us to be. We want to be more and more equipped to live the way of Jesus in our lives. And Jesus tells these various churches things about what he wants them to be, what he knows they can be. Jesus was refining and shaping and honing the mission of these early churches here. And we want him to do that in us as well. We want to be formed into the type of people who can accomplish the mission that he's given us and to be his people. And what we see here is that this letter today is for all those who have grown weary, trying to live a holy life in a culture that is full of pressure to acquiesce and compromise, to capitulate to the status quo and all the peer pressure. And this letter is also an invitation for everybody who's realized that living for temporary instant gratification does not truly satisfy or fulfill. And in the end, it leaves you hollow and devoid of true joy and contentment. And if that's where you are today and you're ready for a change, you need to know that Jesus is waiting. He's been waiting for you. Maybe you're ready to say, I can't live like this anymore, and you're ready to live something different. Jesus is waiting for you. And I'll leave you with this reminder. The staying true to Jesus results from remembering who is truly in charge. What does that look like for you? Well, remember that God is on the throne Maybe you need that reminder today or every day. A good way to engage with that is probably this week or each day. Maybe tape Hebrews 4.16 somewhere where you can see it every day. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
The reality is God is still on the throne. Another practical reminder is that you have an identity in Jesus as one who has been healed. This is the lesson of the white stone. Our identity is in Jesus. If you're a believer and you've never done this before, maybe it's time you write out your testimony of how Jesus has saved you and healed you and then share that testimony with somebody. And I know some of you might think, man, I, I don't have a, that great of a testimony. Well, the reality is we don't get to decide what our testimony is. We come to Jesus and you can, you, then, you, then you have to share your story. You can share your story with somebody so that it can speak to their story. And then you can listen to the testimonies of how God has worked in other people's lives as well. We need this reminder from Jesus that our identity is firmly rooted in him. The last thing is this. Remember that Jesus is present with you. Jesus wants us to have more and more and more of his presence in our lives. That's the lesson of the manna. That's what he means by that. We would learn to trust and depend on him daily. We need that. What does that look like? Well, one way to do that is maybe to read your Gospels or reread them. And when you do that, pay close attention to the words of Jesus in them. Remember, the words of Jesus have authority. They have encouragement, healing. They bestow purpose and identity. The second thing is to speak honestly with Jesus about your struggles when you pray. Just be real. Just be real with him. Tell him what you're dealing with. Tell him how you're tempted to compromise. How are you being persecuted? Talk to him about it. How are you being pressured to give in? Tell him about it. And when you pray, pray with trust and openness and recognize that Jesus is right here. He's close. So I pray that you can live this way, that you can walk the way of Jesus, where you remember God's on the throne, that your identity is in Jesus and that he can heal you, and that Jesus is always present with you. That's my prayer for you, that you would follow Jesus' lead on this because he's the one He's the one who's really in charge because he believes you can do this. I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.